the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I don't know about you, but I want God to bring me to my destination, don't you? I want His strength to be the thing that shows forth in my life. We're thankful for God's love. Praise to the God who reigns above. A component of worship is it declares who God is to me. And descends in perfect love. Another component of worship is it declares God's attributes. And we should do that in our songs and in our, our words all the time. You come to that place where you say, Lord, you are my God. You are my King. You're the one that I follow and I yield to you. Hello and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. The amazing creator of the universe, the great I am, kept his promise. The children of Israel were finally free from Egypt. Not only did God wipe out the land, but he made it where Egypt would never come after Israel in the future. The Israelites crossed through the Red Sea as if walking on dry land. The watered walls they walked between came crushing down on the pursuing Egyptian army. Truly, God is an amazing God. We join Pastor Will as we look at a song of worship written by Moses in Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. As we open in chapter 15, how things have changed since Moses first returned to Egypt, right? I mean, Pharaoh had sent him away, and who is Jehovah, and why should I listen to him? The leaders of his people had rejected him again. Why did you come and bother us? Now our work is harder. And Moses gets to the place at the end of chapter 5 where he cries out to God, complaining, God, you haven't done anything you said you'd do. And into the midst of that deepest pit, the Lord in chapter 6 of Exodus makes three promises to Israel. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I'm going to bring you into the promised land. And I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And in chapter 14, the first promise we find it is now fulfilled. Israel's not just out of Egypt, Israel is free from Egypt. And what a powerful demonstration God used by destroying the Egyptian army in the sea. I mean, you couldn't have thunk it up differently. If ever there was a time to render worship to the Lord, it would be now, right? Well, as we see Israel celebrate and sing, might we locate the true heart of worship that God desires. So chapter 15, verse 1. Well, then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord. And they spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him a habitation. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. 
Pharaoh's chariots and his host has he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, has dashed in pieces the enemy. Well, as we, we begin, that's just the beginning of a song, and I don't know how it goes. We sang a song when I was a young Christian. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider thrown into the sea. So, I mean, I don't know if that's how it went. My guess is no. My guess is uh, it had a little bit of a different tone to it. Some of you are going, wow, I remember that song. You're showing your age. Um, but that's okay. It's a good song. I don't know how it went, and the Bible doesn't give us an indicator of how it went. Lots of theologians have tried to dissect the song and figure out how it went. But what's interesting as we go through here, we've got the song is in verses 1 through 19, and then we see there's another component to the song in verse 21. And it really breaks up simply in verses 1 through 12, we see the people sing of God's victory over Egypt, and in verses 13 through 19, we see them sing of God's future victory to bring them into the land. And so it's not a complicated song. In fact, we could probably spend very little time examining it and move on. But as I was going through this, I felt like the Lord really wanted us to hone in on, on worship because here we, we see really probably for the first time congregational worship as a whole, a group as a whole. We've seen individuals worship. This is probably the first time we have any recorded evidence of song singing or worship by the group of, of God's family, the congregation, so to speak. And in that, when we look at all these verses, uh, verses 1 through 21, we see many different components of worship. I'm going to try to point some of them out as we go through. For example, at the start here, we see some very practical components. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord. I will sing unto the Lord. Here we find the practical components. Someone had to write the song, right? I mean, you don't have songs without someone writing. They don't just appear on the scene. It's not like when Peter became an apostle, you know, the Lord said, here's your, here's your songbook, and that's how, just how it was. They sang hymns from the Psalms or from other parts of Scripture, but obviously throughout time there have been many songs written. While it appears here to just spring out of spontaneity, I imagine it would be difficult for a million people at the same time to start singing the same song. So traditionally, it was considered to have been written. It was one of three songs traditionally attributed to Moses. The other two are Psalm 90, and then I want to say Deuteronomy 30, might be 33. Uh, those are the other two songs that he wrote. It's interesting, I wonder how he taught it. I mean, that's a lot of people to teach the song to. The story goes, when you read about what the rabbis commented on this, is that it was repeated a lot of times so everyone could sing it together. We'll learn later that Miriam played a part in that as well. They would sing the song and she would urge them to sing it again and then they'd sing it again. And the idea was through repetition, they had figured it out and they all sang it together. So someone had to write it. And, you know, that's fascinating because we find all throughout the, the Old and New Testaments, we find that these things are written. Many times we'll see sections at the end of chapters or at the end of passages in the New Testament, and they were early church hymns or early church songs, doxologies, so to speak. So someone wrote them, and so there always should be people writing songs. I always say, you know, it's a dangerous time when the church isn't writing any new songs because it means God apparently isn't doing anything new. We should be writing new songs. This was a new song that Moses apparently wrote and taught to the people. Another practical component, everyone had to sing it. <laughs> it was not a solo. It says that all the children of Israel sang this song unto the Lord. 
And it says they had to make a choice to sing it. They said, I will sing unto the Lord. It says here that they verbalized their choice. I will sing unto the Lord. I remember I was at a conference once, and uh, do you guys remember there's an old vineyard song, I could sing of your love forever. Remember that song? Yeah, over the mountains and the seas, all that kind of stuff. Very popular song, easy to sing. And I was at a conference, and the particular pastor, leader, teacher, whatever, was thinking he was clever. And he said, you know, I don't understand. And, and obviously, it was a conference. It was, it was much more traditional. They sang a lot of awesome hymns. Loved that. Uh, but then he got up and decided to bash people who weren't like him. And why is it? Why all these new songs? All new songs are so shallow. All these new songs is, I will sing, or I will do this. Why don't you say you're, stop saying you're going to do that and just do it? And I thought, you know, it's too bad Moses never heard that critique. That we shouldn't say we're going to sing in our worship songs. Do you know how many times David says that? I will, I will, I will. Do you know the importance of I will? I wills are an important part of our singing because the I will is where surrender takes place. I will sing unto the Lord. I don't feel like singing though tonight. My life stinks right now. I'm going through hard times. I don't feel like singing, but I will sing unto the Lord. And it's in that moment when you say those words that you're making the choice to say, Lord, I'm doing this because I love you and you're more important than any of the problems I'm facing right now. I love you and I want to sing to you even though I don't feel like it right now. It's an important aspect of what we do. We all have to make that individual choice to sing our songs, to verbalize those choices, to say, I will surrender, you know, I will this. But then as we, we move now on and we get to the song itself, we see beyond just the practical components and to what oftentimes worship looks like. And we see here that it declares what God has done. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has he thrown into the sea. And we, we should be doing that. We should be singing of how God has saved us, singing of how he has forgiven our sins, singing of how he died on the cross for us. Those are things that we should be doing. These are components in worship, okay? Verse two, we see not only does it declare what God has done, but it declares who God is to me personally. Verse two, the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him a habitation. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. See, worship, the component of worship also is that it declares who God is to me. It's personal. There are times when just when I'm worshiping, you know, singing down there, and, and we'll sing a song that says we or are, and I'll change it to I or me sometimes, just because I, I know this needs to be something personal to me as well. Worship is corporate, it's everybody's singing, but it's also personal. And here the, the songwriter, Moses, and the people are singing, the Lord is my strength. The word there, strength, means to have the ability to accomplish what you set out to do. Do you believe that God has the ability to do what he says he'll do? Yeah, sometimes we forget that. And then we sing about that. The Lord is my strength. You're like, you know what, Lord? This is nothing for you. This is nothing for you. You're strong. You can do what you set out to do. But not only that, it says, the Lord is my song. I thought that was interesting. What does that mean? The word there for song just means a verbal expression of joy. I like that. The Lord is my verbal expression of joy. When I think about him and I sing about him, I'm expressing how he is my joy. He is the thing that brings joy to my heart. And then it says, he is my God. We need to do that sometimes, don't we, to make that declaration? Lord, you are my God. There are many times in life when I've been struggling with temptation or struggling with this area of discipline and, and I'm, God's calling me to be obedient and I've been fighting with him and you come to that place where you say, Lord, you are my God. 
Like you are my king. You're the one that I follow and I yield to you. He says, and I will prepare him a habitation. Some of you might have a different translation. It might say, I will glorify or I will praise you. And, and that's because that's the root of what this word means. Now, what's interesting is that the idea here is that I will be a place of praise. I will be a place where God is glorified. So that's where they get the idea. I will prepare for him a habitation. I will make my temple a place of praise. Isn't that cool? And we have to make a choice to do that because what's the opposite that we can do? We can complain, right? <laughs> and we often make our temples places of complaining. Well, I don't like this. Or did you hear what Joan said? Did you hear what so-and-so? You know, and, we, and we complain about life rather than making our temple, right? We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our temple, a habitation of praise, a place where he is glorified regularly. And then next he says, my father's God. I love that. Because that's a declaration of God's continual faithfulness to every generation. It's me saying, God, you've been faithful from stage to stage to stage to stage to me. You were faithful to my forefathers. You were faithful to me. You have always been faithful. And because of that, I will lift you up. I will exalt you. So a component of worship is it declares who God is to me. Another component of worship is it declares God's attributes. And we should do that in our songs and in our, our words all the time. Here it says, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host has he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. And the depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed in pieces the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellency, you have overthrown them that rose up against you. You have sent forth your wrath, which consumed them as stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the water were gathered together. The flood stood upright as a heap, and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. I love this here because unlike other deities who are restricted to a certain realm, the Egyptians had their God of the river and their God of the harvest and their God of this and their God of that. Jehovah God, he is an all-powerful God and he becomes to his people whatever his people need him to be. He's not restricted to any one thing. He has many attributes that we can worship him for, that we can tell him that we're thankful for. Now in this instance, the, the singers are declaring that God is mighty and powerful. Pharaoh rose up to do something, and what does it say? God breathed, and it was over, you know? It was nothing for him. He just blew out breath out of his nostrils, and they were done for. It wasn't even hard for him. God is mighty and powerful, and do you believe that? He is mighty and powerful. We should be declaring that and his other attributes as a component of our worship. But... Another component of worship is that it declares God's superiority. Verse 9. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. That's what Egypt and Pharaoh were saying. But again, you did blow with your wind. You just breathed. And the sea covered them. And they sank as lead in the mighty waters. Who is like unto you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises and doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You didn't even have to come. You just lifted your finger and it was over. It asks a very important question. Who is like unto you, O Lord, among the gods? None. None of Egypt's deities was like unto our God, right? No other God out there is like unto our God. Jehovah has defeated them all. Who is like unto the Lord, it says, who is glorious in holiness? 
The word there means abounding in uniqueness, abounding in his separateness. There's nothing like God at all, like, like at all. There's nothing close to him. Like when we talk about God and Satan, and there's no comparison. Satan's closest comparison might be Michael the archangel, because we don't really know how high in the structure Satan really went. God, no comparison. He is unique. He is alone in who he is. And therefore, it says, he is fearful and praises doing wonders. The word there, fearful, means awesome. Something to be greatly respected and reverenced. You know, do you know that, that our God is an awesome God? I know that's a song, but I'm just saying as a statement, you know. Do you know that? We should, that should be a component of our worship where we are in awe of him and we think about his attributes and his power and his might and, and his superiority and we just stand in awe of him. When we get to verse 13, now we see the song leaves behind the victory over Egypt and it looks to God's future victory in the promised land. For it says, you and your mercy have led forth the people which you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength unto your holy habitation. And the people, that's the the Canaanites and all the people around them, they'll hear about it and they're going to be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold in the inhabitants of Palestina. Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab trembling shall take hold upon them. And all the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Fear and dread shall fall upon them. For by the greatness of your arm, they shall be as still as a stone. Till your people pass over, O Lord, till your people pass over, which you have purchased. Here we see that a component of worship is that it's thankful for God's love. The word here, mercy, in verse 13, you and your mercy have set forth your people and guided us to this place, and you'll guide us all the way to your holy habitation. The word there, mercy, is the, is the Old Testament equivalent of agape. It means loyal love, unwavering devotion. God's loyal love, it guides us and it takes us where he, he wants us to go. It goes on and it says that he, you have guided them in your strength unto your holy habitation. I don't know about you, but I want God to bring me to my destination, don't you? I want his strength to be the thing that shows forth in my life. And so we're thankful for God's love. We should, that should be a component of worship. But a component of our worship should also stand on God's promises. Here the singers, they talk about how God's going to, you know, the people are going to be afraid and we're going to overcome. And, and, you know, by the greatness, verse 16 of your arm, you're going to cause your people to pass over, O Lord which you have purchased. You shall, verse 17, bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for you to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. See, worship should be standing on God's promises. That's why when we worship, we should be filled with scripture, right? Because that's where where God's promises are. So it should stand on God's promises. But lastly, a component of our worship is that it rests in God's sovereignty. Verses 18 and 19. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea. And the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them, but the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. The phrase shall reign means God is in the position of the king forever and ever. He is always king. He is always in charge. We never, ever have to worry that God fell off the throne or something happened out of his area of purveyance. We're never out of his jurisdiction. See, the Lord is ruling no matter what men may think because the horse of Pharaoh and, and, and all these chariots, they all were drowned, but he preserved his people. Now, 
After they all sang the song, Miriam and the women, they added an instrumental dance, which was designed as an answer to the song to get the congregation to sing it again, verse 20. And Miriam the prophetess, I don't know why it calls her that. Uh, I don't know if she had done things before this. I don't know if it's because of her association with Moses, but there's a couple occasions where it calls her a prophetess, which simply means she spoke God's word. We just don't know how she did that because we don't see it in Scripture, but apparently she did. And Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, she took a timbrel, a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them. Who? Well, the people who were singing the other part of the song. She answered back to them and said, Sing ye to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider has he thrown into the sea. And then the congregation would respond, and they'd sing it again. And then she'd do the go, and they'd do the dance again, and, and urge them to sing, and they'd sing it again. And the idea was, as there was this mutual encouragement and exhortation to just worship the Lord, to yield to him, to declare his greatness. And, and again, we see interesting components here. We see that women can lead worship too. I've been amazed by some of the, with due respect, any of you have this opinion out here, the chauvinism and not biblicalism of some people about women and worship leaders. The Bible nowhere prohibits women from leading worship. The Bible does prohibit a woman from being an elder. That it does prohibit. So we have some clear understanding, but this is not one of them. Now, the reason that most people feel that way is because God has given a leadership role to men in the church, to men in a culture. Whenever you see a culture or a church where the men are not leading, you're going to find a culture that has grown weak. You're going to find an area, a culture or a church that has grown weak because the men aren't stepping up, so the ladies are stepping up to the plate. Now, although that's the case, there's lots of things that women do in the church. There's a gentleman one time that came up to Bev and and, and, uh, he was... He was living in sin, and she rebuked him and told him, you need, you know, need, need to repent. He, was, he had responded some way to his kids, and she said, don't talk to your kids like that. And he was an abusive man. And, she turned to him and said, he turned to her and said, you need to submit, woman. And she goes, I don't need to submit to you. I need to submit to my own husband. And there is a wrong idea about that. Sorry, honey. Didn't mean to tell your story, but not really sorry. There's a component in that. You know who most of my favorite people in the church were when I was a young person? the widows in our church, because those ladies would challenge me. They were godly women, and they would challenge me. You know, I'd be whining about something, or I'd be talking about in some area where I was kind of messing around or compromising in, and they would challenge me to walk with the Lord. They would challenge me to do what God said. I'm so thankful for those sisters. You know what the Bible says? It says you treat older men in the church like fathers. You treat the older women in your church like mothers, not second-class citizens. You treat the younger men in the church like brothers, and you treat the younger women in your church like sisters. Sister can speak into your life. I've had lots of sisters who have spoken into my life over the years, and I'm so grateful for them, old and young. So women led worship too. Notice here they used instruments. I've heard people say, you know, we should not use instruments in worship. We should all just sing a cappella. That's the way that it should be done. Well, this is the first congregation of worship we have, and there are some instruments going on here, okay? Now, I'll be honest, I'm not a fan of the tambourine, particularly congregational tambourines. We had a guy at Bible college, and he would bring his tambourine on Sunday night chapel service, and I swear we must have broke that thing like nine or ten times. Because here's the problem, okay? There's a reason why we have certain people up here, okay? Need I explain? We don't ask people who can't keep a beat to come up here and lead us in singing. That's for you out there if you're struggling so you can be on pace and be on beat, okay? There was a gal at Bible college. I could never sit next to her. She was so tone deaf, and she just sang in one note the whole time. And, but you know, man, she praised God with all her heart. She'd be up there, hands up in the air, and oh, you know, and just going for it. But I could not sit next to her because I could not sing. And 
that's okay. The Lord has, you know, a filter and it, it, it's all beautiful to him because he's looking at the heart. So that doesn't matter. My point is that she's not going to be up here. <laughs> so please don't bring tambourines or your oboe and play out in the audience. We do things decently and in order so that we can have a structured environment where we can worship the Lord. So they did use instruments, though. So it's okay to have instruments up here. Notice here they also danced. Interesting here. Now, I'm pretty sure this is not the grinding club dancing that we see oftentimes uh, out in society. In fact, I'm sure of it because the word here for dance means to circle dance. And this is a processional dance that's common even today amongst Jewish celebrations. Very frequently you would have the the women, if you watch these guys, they go quick. You would have the, the women on the inside of the circle and the men on the outside, and they usually go opposite directions. And so you know, have the women going around, they're skipping around and whatever, and then you have the guys going the opposite direction, skipping around and stuff. And then, you know, they'll kind of interweave and, you know, I would be like knocked out. I'd run into somebody. So, but that's probably what this is referring to here. We're probably what happened was, is the congregation's all singing, I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. They get to the end of the song, and then the women would come out in a procession behind Miriam, and they would go around the congregation, and they would sing. I'm not Jewish, so we're not going to do that here. I get asked all the time, can, can Christians dance? And with total seriousness, I must say to you, some can, and some can't. <laughs> And I've seen some of you that can't. <laughs> some of you shouldn't. <laughs> no. I grew up in a, and again, if you've come from this background, no offense. I grew up in a semi-Pentecostal environment where we don't, you don't dance, you don't chew, you don't date girls that do. That's just how it worked, okay? You didn't play cards. There's a lot of things you didn't do. And so we didn't do any of that. You only had the, you know, Holy Ghost hop. You ever seen that? Right? Nobody saw that? You need to go visit a Pentecostal church just to see that because it's weird. So nobody dances like that but them. So I had a buddy of mine who was a very expressive individual. He liked to jump up and down and liked to do all that and stuff. And, and he said to me, he said, can I do that at church? And I said, no. I said, uh, you can do it in your own, your own personal space. I said, but I don't know if a church environment is the best place for that unless everyone else is doing it because... Maybe for me, it's just me. That would be incredibly distracting if it's just one person that's hopping up and down and, you know, you're just kind of, you know, looking around and, you know, it would become extremely distracting for me. Granted, now, if everybody in the environment's doing it, then it's not a distraction and it's probably fine. I guess what I'm saying is, is I think each congregation is different in regards to this. Some congregations, the way they dance is they, and then some sway a little bit. And then others, well, they're good calisthenics, so... And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Pastor Chuck always used to say, you know, some people need to hang from the chandelier to feel God, and some people just need to sit down, and that's, that's how they are. I, I'm going to get into this a little bit in a moment, but we're all different, and that's okay. But the idea was is that dancing was okay, you know, as long as it was obviously not sensual. The idea here is just you're, you're happy. You're celebrating. Worship is all about our heart and mind towards God. We should sing of all that he has done for us. We should sing of who he is and how amazing his character is. But we must sing in truth out of a heart of adoration, not obligation. Worship must be just as personal as it is congregational. While we are in this time of a global pandemic, don't be afraid to call and ask for assistance or for prayer. Our office may be closed, but you can still reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our usual office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. 
You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.